What does this mean? Martin Luther asked that question 500 years ago to help regular people connect to the Christian journey. In the next few minutes, the pastors of Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul will talk about some of the Bible lessons that we read in church, connecting a 2,000-year-old book to life in the 21st century. Welcome to What Does This Mean? I'm Pastor Bradley Schmeling. I'm Pastor Lois Palmeyer. And I'm Pastor Javen Swanson. We decided to do this podcast because sometimes the Bible feels really beautiful and clear, and sometimes it feels muddy and hard to understand. And we want you to know that we often have that same impression of the Bible lessons. So this conversation is just a way to engage with these readings and help to understand and make sense of some of them. It's the Easter season, and we notice, especially during the Easter season, a few changes inside our sanctuary. One of the things you might notice is that we have the Paschal candle lit. That's that large candle near the front of the chancel where we where we lead worship. It's often near the font. And the reason for that is because we light baptismal candles from it at baptism time. But it's always lit through the season of Easter, all 50 days. Whenever we gather in the sanctuary, we'll light that candle. It's also lit on days that we have baptisms and on days that we have funerals. In every case, it's a sign of the risen Savior, of Christ's presence alive and in our midst, In the Easter season, traditionally, you move the Paschal candle closest to the table where we recognize Christ's living presence in the Eucharist, in the breaking of the bread. Um, At Gloria Day, that's a little tricky because there's not quite enough room right there. So we put it right next to the font, which is another appropriate spot for it. Um, Always a sign of our baptism connecting us to the life of, of Christ. Well, let's take a look at the readings for the fourth Sunday of Easter. We'll do this in three parts with a little bit of music between our reflections. And uh, you can take a break. We'll be here when you get back. Uh, Pastor Lois, you have the first reading. Why don't you give us a little bit of the background before we read it? Our first reading is from the ninth chapter of Acts, verses 36 through 43. It's this wonderful story of Tabitha, who is also known as Dorcas. I love that she has two names. And uh, it's a a resurrection story after Easter. So I think sometimes maybe we're the fourth week of Easter. It's like, okay, we just keep hearing the resurrection story. Christ is risen indeed. Okay. Hallelujah. Exactly. This story reminds us that resurrection is an ongoing process in our lives too that we get to hear about resurrection through this sometimes forgotten woman, but here she is and mentioned in the scriptures, and I love her story. Pastor Javen, would you read it for us, please? Yeah, this is Acts chapter 9, verses 36 to 43. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. At that time, she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs. 
Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples who heard that Peter was there sent two men to him with the request, Please come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put all of them outside, and then he knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Meanwhile, he stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon, a tanner. Thanks. So we have this prominent leader of her community um, who dies, and you see the grief of the community, the the sense of um, sorrow as they all gather around her. And whether it's the story of her death or the story of the grieving around her, it's it's a situation we all recognize. It feels um, so well described in the story of um, them coming together, them washing her, which is such a tender little detail that often is missed. We don't hear about that in scripture, but the, the people gather to, to wash her and prepare her. And then they call for their friend, Peter, who I don't think they expected him to raise her from the dead. They wanted him to somehow maybe say a few words or be with them in their grief. This woman is named a disciple. It's the only woman in scripture called a disciple, which is interesting. We Again, we don't hear about her other places. So how did she get that name? She or that title. She has that. She seems to be prominent, not only in there, obviously prominent to these people that knew her because of the things that she had sown. And but also maybe she was some kind of a a leader for them. Maybe she was a woman of means. The fact that there's an upper room gives you the impression that maybe she had a two-story place. Uh, that That's usually a sign of some prominence in the community. And then she has these two names, Dorcas and Tabitha. I like the the image of that as she spans two communities or two cultures that she she understands Greek, the Greek world, and maybe commerce or something there. But she also has this Tabitha, this the sense of being part of the Jewish people and being connected to um, Hebrew life too. There's this way that she bridges the community between. Um, peoples, I think, between maybe classes and and here now between life and death. You know, when I when I uh, heard this about the names, I think of like the affectionate names we give to close friends or family. You know, that we're we're out in the world, we're you know our full legal name, but when we're among the communities that truly love us, we we call each other different things or you think about all the 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 ways we name and call our pets too you know right. we come up with these and it's a sign of affection and love and i think you see that in this whole reading that in the christian community there were these deep patterns of love and affection that bound the people together and like you mentioned that the scene of them weeping and showing peter look what she Look what she made for us. It makes me think of, you know, at uh, 
visitations before funerals when families put up all the pictures of the person or sometimes even bring things uh, that they've made to want to show. And those are our ways of still touching their life. Holding on to them. And they said that she was a woman of uh, great acts of charity. So somehow she was either giving away her wealth or sharing all those tunics and things that she had made with uh, with her community. The The line there about the widows coming and showing Peter the things just brings to mind so many images of women around the world to this day gathering up. Uh, our quilters at Gloria Day or any places that you see women kind of huddled together, working on projects together, and then sharing them with the world. It's a, a description of, um, again, selflessness and the sense of charity, but also the sense of using our creative gifts in a way to make something beautiful that then we're able to share with God's world to bring healing to the world. And in a way that that's the way the Christian story moves forward. You know, the Peter, he's out doing all the things that get him all the attention, the notoriety, the public stuff. But where the church is happening is in this community of women. Women sharing both their grief and their joys, but then this incredible gift of resurrection comes to them. So that somehow God uses our, both our grief, enters our grief, recognizes our creativity and our sharing and brings to new life that which is broken and dead in us. The church I grew up in, the quilters, the quilting group was called the Dorcas Circle. And when when, pe- when kids graduated from high school, we would all get quilts from the Dorcas Circle. And to this day, that's my very favorite quilt. Um, and it's got a little um, little badge on the other side that says presented to Javen Swanson on this date um, from the Dorcas Circle of First Lutheran Church in Pine River, Minnesota. And every time I use that quilt, I think about them and I think about this story and just what you said, Pastor Lois, that and Pastor Bradley, like this is where this is how the gospel is now lived out today um, in the in acts of mercy and generosity and grace. And I get to wrap myself up in that every time I use that quilt. That's a beautiful way to end our discussion for this reading. So let's take a little break. Okay, we're back. So let's take a look at the second reading, which is from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. We've been reading Revelation now for a couple weeks. And just a quick little reminder that this book was written to a community of Christians who were undergoing some kind of great suffering, um, likely persecution, but it was a time when there really wasn't much 
hope out there. And so this book is written to provide a sense of hope for the community. And I think that's really important to remember because when Revelation often gets talked about, it's all of the big, scary prophecies that get mentioned. And I always say that if Revelation is making you afraid about what's coming, then it's being misinterpreted because its whole point is to make you hopeful about what's coming. So the book has really been inappropriately used over the centuries. Uh, The reading that we're going to read today comes at a really interesting point in the so far the in the heavenly realm where we are they've been opening these seals which unleash some kind of devastation on the earth which kind of describes what the people are living through really and this vision comes after the sixth seal I was always open. confused about the seals when I was little because I thought they meant the animals, and they're not opening <laughs> seals like that. These are these Ooh. are exactly right. these the are seven seals <laughs> of Revelation. We're going to think we about beasts. that in we a have whole four new way. And seven seals. I was always confused. <laughs> okay, these are seals that hold a document closed, like a wax seal, and when you break it, you can open the document, and whatever is in the document then takes effect. See, I think that makes a lot more sense. Well, it really helps in interpreting Revelation. It does. Yeah. It does. Um, so anyway, we're now at the sixth seal, seal. and uh, there's going to be a seventh, uh, but John has a little break in here to go to the heavenly place. And I think this is how the whole book is supposed to work. It's this break in all you're going through to see something new and beautiful and better. Pastor Lois, would you read this? I'd love to. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these robed in white and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more 
and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thank you. Such a beautiful image that even those last words, the tears wiped from your eyes. And I think this text still works like it was supposed to, is that in our tough times to kind of pull this out and say, there is more to the story than what I'm experiencing in this moment. When I was reading this and thinking about the podcast, I I don't know why I keyed in on the robes part, this getting the the white robe and washed in blood, which, you know, if you wash something in blood, it doesn't turn white. It turns red. But something is being overturned here and something significant is happening to these people who go – who have gone through the great ordeal. Nobody knows really what that was. But something really awful happened to these, to these people. Um, but it made me think when I was a kid, we had this – uh, costume basket in the basement of our house, which had all kinds of old clothes from my parents and even a wig that my mom had back from the 60s and hats and belts and shoes and all this stuff. And we would pull that out in the basement and dress up in those things and then act out whatever it is that we were doing. Like we, we'd play restaurants. So somebody would dress up as the waitress and somebody would dress up as the cook. And um, I think about all the ways we did that. And it's like we were trying on all these different personalities like, well, who can I be? What am I going to be like? And uh, I feel like that's part of what happens here in this text is, you know, a robe is a very biblical thing, you know, uh, the prodigal son, when he comes home, he he gets a robe and it's a sign of his new status and a, a symbol of who he really is. And um, it's like God gives us a sense of who we really are. And, um, and I like the idea of since I don't really feel that way most times, like I'm living up to who God made me to be um, – Maybe I just need to try putting it on, practicing it, okay? In this situation, I, I'm not going to feel like I'm a great Christian or anything, but I'm just going to try being one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put on the robe and look like it and act like it. We wear baptismal robes after we're baptized. That's part of that message of saying whatever we've worn before, worn or done or been before, God wraps us in new baptismal a garment of grace to say, I've, I've wrapped you in a new identity. You are mine. And we often say, too, about the those white robes that we wear when we're leading worship on Sunday morning or when people are baptized. We say that part of the intention is that that garment covers up whatever else we are bringing that day, whatever else we're wearing that day. And so if you come in a great expensive suit or something, we're going to put you in a white robe. If you come in like some of our acolytes in like shorts and a t-shirt and tennis shoes, like we're going to wrap you in a white robe and like all of us are going to be on the same plane. And so I love this in this passage that all these people in white robes are around the throne of God singing and then 
there's this question, who are these people robed in white? And the answer is they're the ones that have been through the great ordeal. And I feel like the people who were through the great ordeal probably weren't looking or feeling their very best. And here around God's throne, they're all wrapped in this white robe, all sort of brought to the same plane, right? And um, it's kind of like what we say, what we're doing when we wear these robes on that no matter what stories we bring or what we've been through, we are all united in this uh, around the throne. Yeah, and it's probably important to note, too, that the way this all starts is that, that that community that's gathered around the throne is from every nation. All tribes and peoples and languages are standing there. So already in these early days of Christianity, there's this beautiful multicultural vision for what the people of God look like. It's not like we're all given this robe that makes us the the same washing away our differences, but we're all bound together around a common, uh, you know, the love of God draws us together, but we still witness to all these beautiful differences that we experience while we're walking on this earth. I noticed in the newspaper this morning that there were three black churches that were burned in Louisiana and possibly a fourth. And it made me think of this lesson because we, we kind of think we live in a time when there's not persecution, um, but actually we do, um, that uh, these black churches were burned. And you think of the shootings in Charleston at Mother Emmanuel Church, that black people are still being persecuted and there is uh, racism in a sense is a great ordeal that people are still living through. And I think this text helps us give – gives us a vision. We can we can come through this, that God will get us to a new way of experiencing community with one another. And will teach us how to wipe away each other's tears. That image, both in the reading from Acts with, you know, Dorcas's friends weeping, but now here too, this promise that even our grief is recognized by God and God will be there to wipe away our tears and to bring us into new life. Let's take a little break and we'll come back with the gospel lesson. Welcome back. Our gospel reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. This is kind of the end of a major section of John's gospel where Jesus is teaching, and it's sort of right before we turn toward Jesus's final uh, days. Um, and so, um, and the thing I want to say about the Gospel of John is that, um, so of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John we think is the latest, that Mark was probably the first one written um, maybe around like the year 60 or something, and that Matthew and Luke sort of used Mark as a template, but then added some of their own bits and pieces. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke all sort of um, 
in some ways mirror each other a little bit, but John seems to be something very different and was probably written about 20 or 30 years after Mark was written, the earliest one. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all seem to present Jesus as sort of this amazing prophet, but like a human, right? And John, it seems like, has this this different sense of Jesus. Remember, John starts with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This understanding of Jesus as being really this divine kind of being, um, more than just a great human and a great prophet, but somehow divine. And we really get a strong sense of that in this passage today. I think it maybe just shows how um, understandings of Jesus evolved for the early Christian community. Um, so, Pastor Bradley, would you read this for us? Sure. This is John ten twenty two through 30. At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me. But you do not believe, because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Thank you. This got me thinking about last month we had a workshop um, on a Saturday morning at Gloria Day, um, Music That Makes Community. And um, it was a time when we were learning how to sing together without music. Um, and and then we you've probably you're, you probably remember we did this in church the following Sunday we did a lot of that kind of singing. Anyway, the person who was leading that workshop, the moment I met him when I arrived that day, I immediately thought, "This is someone I feel safe around." He was so gracious and gentle and genuine. And um, when I introduced myself to him, he just made eye contact and was just really present to me. And I immediately knew this is someone I'm going to feel safe and comfortable with today, which was good because what we were doing was kind of a vulnerable thing, singing in a small group without any accompaniment, um, asked to do some kind of vulnerable things. And it was good to have a leader who I felt really safe with. And um, it made me think, you know, it wasn't that I had read his resume. In fact, I didn't read anything about him <laughs> before meeting him. It wasn't like I read his resume and thought, oh, this is an impressive person that I'm going to be excited to meet and spend a morning with. Um, it was really that when I got there and had this experience of him, it was the experience of being around him that drew me in and made me want to um, – made me excited to be there that day. And I think that's sort of what's going on in this passage, that these um, these people are asking Jesus, just tell us, are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus is like, look, I've been telling you – I haven't been using my words, but I've been showing you who I am. And the people who are following me, who have had this experience of me, they all know it. And 
I could go ahead and tell you whatever you want, but it's the people who experience what I have to offer and then choose to follow. They are the ones who are my sheep. They hear my voice and they follow. And I think sometimes we get hung up on, am I believing the right things about Jesus? Like, how do I know God is real? How do I know who this Jesus is? And it's like, we actually, we have these opportunities to experience Jesus all the time in our lives, in in everyday experiences of grace and mercy and love in our interactions with others. And when we see that as an experience of Jesus and say, yes, that is who I want to follow, that, that's what it actually means to be a Christian. It's not about reading the creed and saying, aha, yes, this is this is me. <laughs> I understand that and I completely agree yes. with it. Yes. Yeah. Right. So I think it's – I think what Jesus is trying to say here is um, experience me, experience God's love and then follow. When John uses uh, – or when Jesus in John's gospel uses the phrase eternal life, I feel like it's exactly that, what you're describing. Sometimes we've always thought that meant – heaven after we die. But if you read John's gospel, he doesn't talk that way. He always says, this is eternal life right now. We are are invited into God's grace, God's incredible welcome and comfort and the flock to be part of that flock right now. This is starting right now. And those who are following me are already experiencing eternal life. They're not waiting for some description of it. Here it is. We have it. I almost never use the words eternal life when I preach anymore because it comes comes with this whole way of thinking about what Christianity is, about getting to this place someday. And I think that's actually a mistranslation of John anyway. It's more like abundant life, deep life, meaningful life, full life. That's what happens um, in relationship to Jesus. And it's something that we experience in this moment, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. It's like infinitely deep rather than infinitely long. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's good. That's I'm good. Like, like that. It's I'm going to steal that. It's not life that goes on forever and something that I get after I die, but it's like something I get to experience now that's like profoundly deep. Right. And it's so deep, it doesn't end when our bodies die. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Lovely. I think this is a text for Minnesotans too. Say more about that. Because Jesus is present in the winter. It says in verse 22, it was winter. And that's Jesus is there. And I think we always have to do a caveat or name in these texts from John um, that they've been used in anti-Jewish ways. And when you read this and it says, um, the Jews gathered around to say to him, I think we always have to remember, they all were. It's not like Jews and Christians. Like the Christians for the ones who follow Jesus and the Jews weren't. This is just a way of saying you know, like Americans the community. or yeah, Judeans. This is not about a religious faith per se. Right. And in fact, in an earlier episode of this podcast, you talked about the way and how the earliest believers didn't see themselves as Christians. They saw themselves as people who were following the way, like a, a new way. I think within – they saw within Judaism. Um, and so, they yes, they were all Jews at this time. With that, thank you for the conversation today. We're 
interested in hearing what you think about these texts or this podcast, you can feel free to drop us an email at pastors at gloriadaystpaul.org. And as usual, we want to thank the amazing Paul Friesen Carper for providing the music for the podcast. Join us for worship every Sunday at either 8.15 or 10.45 with Sunday School at 9.30 in between. A note that on Memorial Day weekend, we switched to a summer schedule where we're at 8.15 and 10 o'clock with no Sunday School in between. Thank you so much for joining us today. Know that God is with you, God loves you, and God will provide what you need today. This has been What Does This Mean? a podcast created by Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can find Gloria Day online at www.gloriadaystpaul.org. This podcast has been produced by Minnesota Podcasting, and they can be found online at www.mnpodcasting.com. 